Right, so this is the third section on Martin Luther as we, we're working through church history. Um, we we kind of went through the, the important parts of his life, his early childhood, and then up into the 95 Theses, and then the two diets, the Diet of Augsburg and then the Diet of Worms, and we kind of left everything after the Diet of Worms. Um, what happens there is the, the emperor, um, Charles V, decides that he is worthy of condemnation, um, but he is snuck out uh, because, again, Frederick, um, at this point in time, um, Frederick the Wise both believes two things. Um, he believes, one, and, and most importantly, that Luther is not getting a fair shake, um, that the events at Worms did not actually prove that he's a heretic, that it was just the church demanding things out of him, and he didn't think that this was a just way of, of working things. And so he, he escorts Luther out um, before any fatalities can happen. But he's also coming around on the fact that Luther might actually be right. So earlier on, he was protecting Luther, even though he, he, he held that he could very well be wrong. Um, but now, uh, having heard from Luther much more, he, he believes that he's right. And what's going to happen from then on out is a fracturing of Germany and a fracturing, basically, of Christendom over the next couple of decades. Um, and Luther's life begins one of just kind of moving around from place to place until there's more solidity around him um, where he can, he can actually live out, kind of out in the open as Martin Luther without fear of reprisal or the emperor coming after him or anything like that. Um, so what ends up happening to Germany, uh, which is really the Holy Roman Empire, provinces are going to break up into Catholic provinces and, and Protestant provinces, and people are going to flee from one province to another because of that. If they hold Catholic beliefs and they're found in Protestant areas, things will not go well for them. Don't, don't think that Protestants um, handled themselves well in times like this. They did not, neither did Catholics. No one is really uh, shining with honor um, during the early part of the Reformation. So um, we talked about all those things, and what we really want to do today is talk about the major um, impacts of Luther's theology, what he thought about some of the most important things. Clearly, we're not going to catch all of them. Uh, his writing was voluminous, uh, but we're going to capture kind of the most important bits. The first part is, is obviously um, the major theological thing that Luther did was the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, so to set that up, what I want to do is kind of backtrack back to Aquinas and talk for just a second about what Aquinas believed and how that became sort of cemented into the church and, um, and talk about how Luther then, what he does that adjusts that. So Aquinas doesn't know Greek at all. He doesn't, he can't read Greek. He doesn't have Greek manuscripts. There's, there's no way that he can know that. And so everything's based off of Latin for him. And um, what he reads when he reads to justify, right, is um, kind of like how we would read the word clarify. And so when you clarify something, you make it clear. And so for him to be justified or to justify something is to make something just. It is, it is the process by which one is made just. Um, that's not the sense in which it's really used in, in Koine Greek. Um, the, the word is completely different in the Greek, obviously. Um, our word for justice, by the way, comes directly from the Latin. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he makes this bad connection that to justify something is to make it just. And so if we are justified, we must be made just as well. Um, all of that is wrong, but I, I really do want to imply that it, it's really understandable given what he had at hand and, and the implications for what he saw. Um, 
you come up to some sincere problems when you handle Scripture, but um, you can understand why he made that error. Uh, nevertheless, um, that error then gets tied in with this theology from Anselm, to go back again even further, where Anselm talked about the merits of Christ, right? So uh, God has been dishonored by our sin, and, and Christ shows the merit of God's goodness. And so this then builds up a theology where justification is tied to sanctification, and that sanctification is based off of the merit that you gain from the work of Christ. So Catholics are very clear. It is all done by the work of Christ. They're they are gaining no merit of their own. It is all the merit of Christ. However, the church then becomes, through other theologies, basically the bank in which Christ has made that huge deposit of merit. And you therefore come to the church, and the church hands out merit to you. So you, you come to Mass— it's a merit, right? You um, come to confession, there's a merit for you. You have last rites, there's a merit for you. And you end up with this purse of imaginary merit by which you show up to heaven and you say, here. And Peter looks at it and he counts it and he says, you're a couple hundred short, here's purgatory. And so you, you eventually have to then through purgatory make that up because you're not sanctified yet. To be fully justified is to be fully just, which is sanctification. Um, and Luther comes around, and, and Luther understands this. Uh, so Aquinas is not a small or unimportant man in Roman Catholic theology. He's called the doctor of the church because he is the dude in the church. No one has quite the importance of, um, of Aquinas in Roman Catholic theology, even Augustine and others. And so by the time you get to, um, to Luther's time, Luther, this is sort of firmly established in his mind as to how he's supposed to go about this. So he's going to Mass, and he's doing confession and all the stuff that we talked about, and it's just not working. He, he feels like he dreads God. It's just, it's a, it's a rough go for him. Um, he is doing everything in his power to cleanse himself, um, whether that means through confession, through uh, going into um, take uh, Mass. It's doing good works, everything that he is doing, um, he, he can't clean his soul out. And he reads things like this in, in Romans, um, especially in Romans 1, a verse that we're going to talk about here in just a second, where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And um, so he gets his doctor of theology in 1512, and about 1515, he has worked through a number of psalms. He's written commentaries on the psalms, and he starts writing on the book of Romans, and this verse just, he hates it. He doesn't understand what Paul's getting at, because in his mind, when it says, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, when he hears the word righteous, he's hearing the word justice of God. And so he he views this only in terms of judgment. And he hears Paul saying, hey, there's good news. God is going to judge all of you wicked sinners. And for Luther, he, he's like, this doesn't make sense. Why would anyone be happy about this? How is this, how is this good news? How, how am I supposed to understand this as being good news? And he really didn't view Christ as a savior. He, he viewed him much more as sort of this dreadful judge. Um, and then all of a sudden, one day, uh, when he's, he's really, again, meditating on, on this particular verse, uh, all of it kind of hits him, and he, he comes to this point where he, he says, I've got it now, I understand. And this is what he writes. Uh, this is in his Romans commentary, um, which is long, but it's worthy of being read in full. Um, he begins, Nevertheless, 
In spite of the ardor of my heart, I was hindered by the unique word in the first chapter, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated the word righteousness of God because in accordance with the usage and custom of the doctors, that that is Aquinas and and the scholastics, um, I had been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning, as they put it, the formal or active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unjust. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous, uh, excuse me, the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Day and night, I tried to meditate upon it with the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeing analogies, seeking analogies and other uh, phrases, such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. And so he's saying, listen, this, these two things, I struggled with them. And then uh, what, what he comes to the conclusion is, is that he, he ties this righteousness of God directly into the justification that we have because of that linking idea of faith. And he says, this is the righteousness by which God makes us righteous. Okay? Now, I... I have issues uh, with the way in which Luther frames this. I don't think it's quite what Luther is saying. But um, the idea is what Luther does, as he says, we, we have to wrench apart the idea that we are sanctified from the idea that we're justified. And that it's not you, you are justified by faith and what Catholics believe that to mean is you are justified sort of like by faithful living, right? So you are justified by living faithfully until the moment that you're fully sanctified and allowed into heaven. But what Luther saw it as is you're simply justified by faith, by trusting and believing in God, and then God is the one who works this in you. Now, he, he has this idea of, of imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. I don't think that that's quite what the phrase means um, here, especially. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the idea that we are justified by believing and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ apart from anything else that we do, that it's punctiliar, it's momentary, that instant you are saved. Um, That then, he's like, well, I started to look all over the rest of of Scripture, and I found analogies for this, that that these are things that God gives to us when, when these kinds of phrases are used. The wisdom of God is not just that he is wise, but that he is imparting wisdom to us and things like that. And so this was a huge 
distinction from the church. And you can see how much of Catholic theology this would kind of undo, right? Because you've got the mass, you've got other, um, these other acts of, of penance uh, or confession, uh, other sacraments, that uh, baptism and stuff that you go through, um, where merit is being given. And Luther has basically come in and said, the idea of merit in the way in which Catholics have conceived of it is basically wrong, okay? Now, um, when we speak of the Reformation, uh, typically, this is the primary thing that we're talking about theologically, okay? So this is the one thing that sets um, not just Reformed Christians, but any Protestant Christian aside from and differentiates them from Roman Catholics. Um, however, I, the interesting bit is I don't think it had to be that way. So uh, Luther comes upon this, and in 1517, two months before he posts the 95 Theses, he actually posts the 97 Theses to the Wittenberg door. The 97 Theses are theses about justification by faith. They made no impact whatsoever. No one threw up their hands and had a hissy fit. Um, no one wrote the Pope and said, hey, this is going on. No one had any issues. I would, I would think that the entirety of the Reformation and Catholic theology would have worked out much differently had a couple of things been different. Um, it might not have turned out any different at all, but there's a possibility that it would have. If, if St. Peter's Basilica hadn't been started in 1508 or 1506, whatever it was, if Leo didn't have to fund it and he wasn't such a, a rascal and a horrible dude, if Albrecht wasn't up to his neck in debt to the Pope and... Um, and both of them sought to alleviate those particular debts by the sale of indulgences. Luther very well could have continued to push for justification by faith. And at that time, he could have worked it out at Wittenberg, and it could have spread to other places, and, and they could have kind of bought into it. There's nothing, there's nothing actually in justification by faith at this point in time, that is dead set against Roman Catholic theology. There, there's nothing that, that would have prevented it from becoming something that Roman Catholics could have latched on to. The major problem was that Luther, after the 95 Theses and after the Diet of Augsburg and Worms, was now a heretic. And ain't no one going to side with Luther on a theological point against Aquinas when he's a heretic. And so... Because of the 95 Theses and because of his problem with indulgences, the, the doctrine of justification by faith is never even possibly going to be accepted by the Catholic Church. This is one of the reasons why they so strongly reacted against it. So when we, we talked about Aquinas, we actually read from the Council of Trent, which was um, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, sort of the pinnacle of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, where they, for the first time, were very explicit, justification is linked to sanctification, and you cannot break the two. They did that because they couldn't give Martin Luther that, because this was the major theological thing that Luther came to. And they were not going to give him an inch, and they couldn't, because he was completely and utterly disagreeing with Aquinas, and you couldn't agree with a heretic against Aquinas on something so central to salvation. And so the fact that indulgences were the real issue that caused— and again, you'll notice that in our history, we haven't even mentioned justification by faith yet. It was all indulgences and papal authority 
this is really what is the cause of the Reformation. This happened to be an issue that theologically was most important, but again, the reason why Catholics would never move on it and can't move on it is because it was the theological point that Luther made. This was the theological thing. Outside of papal authority, they were never going to cede to this. Um, in another universe where Leo isn't such a doofus and Albrecht isn't so much in debt, um, indulgences aren't, aren't being tossed around, um, given 10, 15 years, this might look different. But that was not the world that we live in. So um, it's interesting as well uh, that we don't remember the beginning of the Reformation to be in September of 1517, which was when the 97 Theses about justification by faith were posted on the Wittenberg door, but we remember it as All Saints Day two months later when the 95 Theses were posted on the Wittenberg door. Um, nevertheless, this is Luther's greatest theological accomplishment, and it is the most important one because this unravels so much Catholic theology, um, specifically the theology around sanctification, around the issue of penance, and it, it again, untethers salvation from uh, I want to be careful how I say it. It doesn't untether it from the church, but it untethers it from the authority of the church. Because the church no longer is the one who gets to dole out salvation as they see fit, right? This is what the priest, if the priest didn't forgive people, they weren't forgiven. If the priest forgave people, they were forgiven. Um, and, and so the gateway to everything was through the authority, not so much of the church, but of the people who ran the church, this was what Luther basically undoes um, by, by first unraveling authority and then through that coming back to justification by faith. Um, so it's important and we, we still hold to it and we're grateful to. And we can, we can differ, I, I think I differ with Martin over the, um, some of the details of how that works, uh, but nevertheless, we all Protestants hold to that, that you are saved by faith through grace. So any questions on justification? by faith and how it works out differently with Catholics. We've talked about it a little bit, but not too much. Okay, let's move on to um, some other important things that, that Luther said. Uh, first, let's talk about sacraments. Um, sacraments are means of grace within the Catholic Church. We don't use the word sacraments very often as Baptists. I will say, though, if you go back and you read your good 16th century Baptists, they have absolutely no problem using the word sacrament. Um, they're perfectly happy to do so, uh, but nevertheless, we don't use it today because it's too closely tied to uh, Roman Catholic theology. Uh, Luther basically came out and said, uh, Roman Catholics have seven different sacraments. I can't remember what all of them are. Marriage, last... Uh, um, the unction one, um, final unction, super unction, I don't remember what it is. There's a word before unction there. You can tell I'm up on my Roman Catholic theology. Don't laugh, Chris. Um, uh, there's penance, there's other, uh, other uh, versions of, of sacraments that they have, the Mass. Um, Luther came back and he said, there's, there's a couple of qualifications we need to make for something to be a sacrament, or what we would call ordinances. Th those things are, they have to be a symbol of the gospel, and they have to be put in place by the Lord, okay? Um, and because this is what Luther conceived of, uh, this kind of got handed down to the rest of Protestants, um, and the idea was, hey, there's two of them then. There's, there's two sacraments or two ordinances, that of the Lord's Supper and baptism, which is interesting to me because one could easily make the case for 
John's foot washing to be exactly the same kind of thing because Jesus not only institutes that in John in place of the Lord's Supper, but he says, you must do this to others. And so it seems as though it's a, he's establishing something there. Um, there's probably other things that you could look at with the same sort of requirements and, and say that Jesus is establishing this as, as an ordinance of the church. Um, so maybe those qualifications are a little bit odd, but nevertheless, um, we, we kind of come along with, with Luther and agree to those things. Um, his view of the Lord's Supper was um, much different than Roman Catholics in certain ways and much the same in others. Um, he certainly moved away from the idea that you can have private masses. Um, so the Roman Catholics could order private masses every now and then and in order to receive more grace. And, uh, and Luther said that's not what mass is for. That's not what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is for. Um, we'll get to um, transubstantiation, but the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ was like re-crucified through the um, blessing of the bread and the blessing of the wine, um, that was done away with because he didn't believe in transubstantiation. It kind of does away with that. Um, what's more, he believed that communion in both kinds should be given to everybody. So the, the lay people were at that time through um, whatever means by Catholicism, I don't know why this came to be, um, but they were only given it in one kind. They were only given the bread. They were not given the wine. I don't know why the wine was withheld from laity, but it was. Um, he changed that as well. Actually, he didn't change it. Other people changed it, but he went along with it. Um, and he also didn't think that there was merit in it. You weren't, you weren't um, gaining, you know, coins for heaven or something like that. Um, but he didn't go as far away from the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper as I think we would. Um, so transubstantiation, can anybody, can anybody remember what transubstantiation is? When I help a brother out. Right. And not just any blood in anybody, but the body of, of and blood of Jesus, right? And so we want to be really careful with what we say here because Wycliffe got himself in trouble for this. Um, and basically what Luther's going to do is accept Wycliffe's conclusions. But what Wycliffe says is, um, you know, when the Lord Jesus Christ took on a human body, he doesn't obliterate the humanness of the body. It still stays a human body. Likewise, we would say the same for the bread and the wine, right? So the bread still has some readiness to it and the wine is still something of wine. Um, and that was enough to get him posthumously uh, excommunicated and burned as a heretic um, because the doctrine of the Catholic Church is the essence of the, the bread and the essence of the wine is utterly and completely changed. So even though uh, philosophically we would call it essence and accidents, the accidents all seem to point towards bread and wine. So it smells like bread, it tastes like bread, it looks like bread. All of the sense material that you have would tell you that what you're handling is bread. Nevertheless, the essence is body, and it is the body of the Lord. Um, it, is, it is not bread anymore at all. What you are handling is sort of like, it's a, it's a, I, um, I want to say it's like a parlor trick, but I'm really not trying to be disparaging to Roman Catholic beliefs. Like, it, it it, it looks like it's bread, but it's not bread, right? When you eat it, you are eating the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Luther basically accepts um, Wycliffe's version of this. 
He wants to hold on to the fact that there is the real presence of the Lord in the bread and in the wine. And so um, it's a mystical presence. It's still bread and it's still wine, but there is something of the presence of Jesus Christ there, okay? Um, so it's not purely symbolic. He doesn't think that it's purely symbolic. And Luther, um, as, you, as you might have guessed, uh, is pretty forceful with this view um, to, the, to the point where he is unwilling to negotiate on this view at all. Um, we're going to hear about Zwingli next week. Uh, Zwingli has a different view, and because of that, Luther will never partner with him. Uh, Luther is actually really annoying when you when they debated on this whole point. Luther just kept pointing at, like he he would he literally I, I might have my history wrong here, but I think he etched into the table where he was sitting. This is my body, and every time that Zwingli would bring up a point, he would just point at the table because he was like, hey, this is the body of Jesus, which is just annoying. I mean, that is, you know, like, he's a five-year-old. Like, that's stupid. Um, something I would do totally, but he's, he's a five-year-old. So uh, he, he's really feisty about it. Um, what do you guys make of that? So let's have a, a little bit of input from you guys. Is that, is that a, an okay understanding? Is it, is it flat out wrong? How would we correct Luther's view on that? So again, what Luther believes, it is, it is wine and it is bread, but that the Lord is really present in the wine and in the bread. And so you are actually taking in the Lord Jesus Christ when you, when you do these things. Um, what would we say to that? Mark. So, so we... we wouldn't want to deny something of the real presence of the Lord, but we would, we would be specific as to where that real presence is found. Okay. Anyone else? I think that those, both of those content would do. Well, I'm just, it's, it's the understanding, like, coming just from him saying, this is my body and this is my blood, because there are so many other places yeah. where he speaks yeah. metaphors like that. I mean, I must abide in him and he abides in me. You're the branches. Like, we, He's the vine that becomes the, the wine later on. You just need to wait. Right. And, and one, one would have to, and again, I want to I wanna preface, once we get into Luther's theology, history, I'm, I'm kind of piecemealing together from other sources, so I'm okay there. Um, I'm not a, a Lutheran theological guy, so I haven't spent a lot of time looking at Luther's theology, so there's going to be times when I'm talking, I'm kind of, I think this is what he, he buys into. Um, he, he must have a way of handling that stuff. Luther was, he was too knowledgeable about Scripture to not do that. This does seem like it's just a holdover where Luther, what we find is that, that he's willing to go so far, but he is unwilling to go as far as, as the rest of the, the kind of cohort that hangs around him is. So Melanchthon and Karlstadt are going to take his theology and they're going to say, actually, what you were saying leads us here. And Luther is going to say, no, 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 no. He, he does that for two reasons. One, 
in, in a couple of different situations, he does it because he, he practically doesn't think the people are ready for it, okay? He, he, he thinks that it will lead to bad things, even if he believes that it's true. He doesn't want the practice to move that quickly. He, he, he's trying to pump the brakes on, on a lot of this stuff. Um, the second bit of that is where he doesn't think that it's right at all. And this is one of those cases where he just doesn't think it's right. And, and I think that it, it simply is just too much for him. For whatever reason, um, it, it was so central to Catholic thinking at that time, he just couldn't break far enough away from it. I, I agree with, with what Mark and Sharon both said. Um, I think that he's right to want the real presence. It's not a purely symbolic thing. It's not just symbolism, but it is symbolism, right? So we want to say that there's something symbolic happening. It's not the real thing, in other words. What Catholics do is they're all the way on sort of the realism side of the Lord's Supper, that you're literally eating the flesh of Jesus Christ. And then there are people on the evangelical side that are so far, it's, there's nothing else happening. You're just kind of like doing a symbolic gesture, okay? Um, I, I think that both of those ends are wrong. We're, we, we believe that it's not the real thing. Like you're not actually eating the, the foot of Jesus, whatever part you get. Um, but you're, you're also not just eating bread. There's something more important going on than that. And so I agree. I think that we, we want to maintain the real presence of the Lord, but where is the real presence of the Lord always spoken of as being? It's spoken of being as, among his people. And, and um, we were talking about communion, about being with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, certainly, it's symbolic of what spiritually happens to us. He's present with us in the taking of the blood and the, and the body, um, but, but not through the blood and the body, through us being collectively together. Um, so I, I agree with those things. Um, Right. They they weren't. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good point, right? So you can't if it's just symbolically, um, the way in which Paul talks in First Corinthians eleven is is strong. You know, this is why some of you are sick and some of you are dying. Um, to mess up a symbol and have that happen, you know, the Lord Lord takes symbols. You know, he. he places importance on those, so it's not out, out of the bounds, but it, it does seem like there is something m a little bit more robust happening in those places. So, um, so he, he changed a lot in the Lord's Supper from what the Catholics uh, had done before, um, not all that far. Um, baptism is sort of in the same vein. Um, I'll just say a couple of things about his view on baptism. He didn't buy into um, baptismal regeneration. He didn't think that that was okay. Um, he did want to baptize infants, though. And he makes this really curious argument, um, which I've heard from other Presbyterians. Uh, he's not Presbyterian. He's Lutheran. Um, you might not have known that about Martin Luther, fun fact. Uh, but um, I've heard this from other paedo-baptists. So when we say paedo-baptists, paedo just means child, right? So children, baptizers. Um, this very interesting little thing where Luther thought that faith was super important, but one of the reasons why they baptize children is to highlight the gratuitousness of the gift of salvation. So you, you baptize babies because it shows that they've done absolutely nothing 
to earn the salvation, but it is God's free gift to them because they can't even believe. You're just, you're just giving it to them, um, which is such a strange thing. Like, why don't we just walk around with water bottles squirting people in the face, right? Like, it, 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 it seems like it's an odd thing. And then connecting it to families, by the way, also seems like a very, very weird thing because for Jews, it wasn't connected to your parents. It was connected to your great, 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 great uncles. No, no, a great, great, great grandfather, right? Abraham. Um, and it was passed down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But once you hit Jacob, you're in, right? You've got people who have, you've got wretched kings who have sons who are super faithful, but they're all in the covenant. Like Manasseh is in the covenant, you know? They're, they're in the covenant because they're born to Jacob. So it's not even, it's, it's not even like you're, you're passed down on your father's faith. Uh, it's a very odd argument. Um, and, and the main counter to that is absolutely nowhere is that the picture that the New Testament presents of what baptism is about? Baptism isn't about the freedom of the gift, although we want to highlight that. Baptism isn't about the freedom of the gift. Baptism is about your union with Christ. You are, you are buried with him in a death like his. You are raised to walk in the newness of life. It, it, is, it is showing that Christ has been your substitute. You are now unified with him and unified with all those who have been baptized before. So a really kind of strange argument there, um, which you hear sometimes from Paedo-Baptists. Um, I've heard it from Presbyterians before, and I just I'm kind of dumbfounded by it. Um, a couple of other things as we uh, get closer to the end. Um, it should be noted that Luther would probably not be considered terribly evangelical. Um, he, he really would be on the fringes of it. He certainly wouldn't sign on to the Baptist faith and message, not just because of baptism, um, but even if you placed our understanding of Scripture before him, it doesn't seem like Luther would sign on to that. Um, and certainly he wouldn't sign on to something like the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy or anything like that. So for Luther, the Word of God was, was in the first instance and in the most central instance, the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, which you can understand, John 1 and all that bit. As you begin to then talk about what he has done, you kind of have these sort of concentric circles that go out that refer to the Word of God, but aren't precisely equated with the Word of God. So Jesus is the Word of God, and Scripture is closely related to the Word of God because Scripture tells us about Jesus and what he has done. But that scripture seems to, in Luther's thinking, be only as good as it speaks of Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel. This is why he has problems. Um, he calls the epistle of James um, an epistle of straw. Um, and the reason why he does that is because he just, he, he reads it and he's like, there's just not a lot of Jesus here. And because there's not a lot of Jesus here, it's, it's a step or two removed from the word of God. Right? So it's still scripture. He's, he believes it's in the Bible. He believes that it's, it's part of the Bible. Um, but nevertheless, it doesn't speak directly to the word of God. And so it's, it's not as, as useful as the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Luke are. Um, he has the same sort of issues with the book of Revelation. He just, he doesn't find a lot of gospel in the book of Revelation. There's obviously some, but some of the imagery troubles him. And so um, he, he speaks disparagingly of some of uh, what we would call scripture. Um, and so I think in that, in that sense, he, he really is um, much different than we are. Uh, you know, we, we're not going to budge on those types of things at all. And, and Luther seemed to be a little bit looser with those things than we are. Um, uh, he has this, um, one of the other important things uh, before, and we'll finish with this, is the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. Um, 
when he talked about the theology of glory, what Luther meant was, when you look around the world, there are things that, that people think are glorious and powerful and magnificent. And especially when Luther, coming off of being connected to the Roman Catholic Church, he found these things sort of reflected in the church. So the church itself at that time was powerful. The church itself was, um, was a picture of beauty. So again, St. Peter's Basilica is not something to scoff at. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous building. Uh, people recognized it even then. It was truly an accomplishment made by man. Um, and, and his whole idea is when, when you think that God works through these things that humankind thinks are glorious, um, whether it's through the power of the world, through what the world thinks is beautiful, through what the world thinks is glorious, what the world thinks is noble, um, you are missing the theology of the cross. Because the whole structure of the Roman Catholic Church, and this, this bled over a lot from secular thinking, um, which you find all the way up until basically America destroys it, um, which is this thinking that there are nobles and there are everybody else. And there is no social mobility between those two classes, right? And so people who are born noble, who are born into power and born into wealth, are, that, is, that is a gift of God. And so you have these horrible people who are running the Catholic Church, and people don't really blink an eye on it because, well, God has clearly given them over to the church because they're noble, because they're powerful. And, and Luther looks at that and he says, that's just, that's just a theology of glory, that is just looking at the accomplishments of man and thinking that must be how God works. And he says, but, but the cross really cuts across that. It, it, it doesn't, God doesn't show his power the way we think his power should be shown. The power of the cross is a power of death, right? Jesus dies on the cross. Um, the cross doesn't look glorious, but the Gospel of John continues to call it glorious. And so Luther says it, it is looking at these it's looking at how God works in the world completely differently, thinking through um, being humble, thinking through being, um, uh, you know, that he, he works through common people. He doesn't just work through the great and the, the powerful men. Um, and even, even through governments and, and things like the church, um, one of the, the real positives of Luther's theology is to sort of reassess the, the importance that the church thought it had um, it was no longer a humble church. And, and this, his doctrine of the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory was meant to kind of pinpoint that and say um, that just because it looks powerful according to the world doesn't mean that that's how God acts. And, um, and it's a pretty straightforward application of uh, his disassociation with the church. Um, but I think it's a right one. I think that, that his doctrine of the theology of the cross is, is a really important doctrine for us to hold on to. So um, there, there are other aspects of what Luther taught that moved the church away from Roman Catholic theology. Um, again, we're Baptists, so we don't think he moved quite far enough. Um, we don't think that the next generation of, of believers is going to move quite far enough. We're going to have to wait. Um, the Anabaptists are crazy in their own like little particular way and so they move too far and so we're we're not quite at the uh the goldilocks sweet spot but we're going to get there the general baptists are coming um and so we'll, we'll get there sooner or later but um luther luther was just a monumental figure um unfortunately though he he and, and i don't really know what to make of this so um 
in our day and age, reading Luther is not the best thing to do because we tend to associate zeal with coarseness, and he, he was really helpful in that. Like, he was just a jerk. Like, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts. Like, we can read them now and think, like, oh, that's funny. Like, because he was, he was a man of humor, and he knew how to lay people out. Um, and so there is something about that that is attractive, but there's also something about that that's sinful. And, and Luther knew it, but he still had trouble controlling what he wrote and how he wrote about people. Um, I don't know how to feel about it, though, because the church fathers were also like that. Like, Athanasius was just as bad about doing that. Like, there were heretics all over the place, and he was very quick to, to lay people out. So um, maybe that, that is just the, the kind of nature of the men who happened to, to end up being great. I would like to think that um, that's also one of the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory type things. Um, it got Luther notoriety, um, and, and certainly the, the sting of his pen was one of the things that drew attention to him in the first place. Um, if the 95 Theses weren't written the way they were written, they might have just been blown over and, and nothing would have happened. So um, he was the right man at the right time. I will note also, by the way, that because the Reformation and everything happened primarily because of indulgences, this, this really could have happened under Wycliffe and it could have happened under Huss. But neither of those two gentlemen was in the right place at the right time. It took the right circumstances with the German people just being fed up to the brim with, um, so nationalism plays a role in this because you've got an Italian guy looking at the Germans, telling them to fund his building, um, taking advantage of them. They're getting fed up with it. There's all these things that happen. Luther, in justification by faith, is doing something completely different. But what causes the Reformation had been said two or three times already. It's, it's all about the authority of the Pope, and the Pope does not have authority over you and over me. Scripture alone has that authority. So any, any questions as we, we kind of close out about Luther in general, like anything about his life? I don't know the name of his pets or anything, so, but anything else is fine. He probably named one of his dogs Leo, though, I would guess, because he was not a fan of Leo. <laughs> Yeah. He wasn't at first. He wrote very kind things about the Jews, and he, he explained to German princes that, that the Jews ought to be treated really well. Something happened later in his life, and he became, um, I, I don't know what, exactly what it was. I think he put himself out by saying that. I'm not going to psychologize him. I don't know why, but toward the end of his life, he became rabidly anti-Semitic, and it was the kind of thing that um, the Nazis would use as propaganda. It's hard to underestimate how much the German nation was founded on Martin Luther. Like, he is, he's not just the father of the Reformation. He is the founder of Germany in a, in a number of ways. So um, just like Shakespeare in the King James Bible formed the English language, all of that was found in Luther. So if you combine Shakespeare and the influence of the King James Bible, you basically have both of those things put together, which are huge in their own right, basically just Luther for Germany. And so when, when he speaks like that, um, it's, a, it's a really bad legacy that he left. And we shouldn't blow it off. It, it was horrible. And, and Luther was not, not backing off on it. So. And it, it is a strange turn because early in his life, he wrote very, very fondly of, not fondly, but um, he wanted them to be treated well for the sake of the gospel. Um, they didn't receive the gospel 
and then at the end of his life, he, I don't know if that's just correlation or causation, but yeah, he, it's not, it's not pretty. He wrote whole books about it, so it's not good. good. Hang on, I'll get Stephanie. Yeah. So the, the question was, how would they view the thief on the cross? Um, I, th I don't know. So the, the, first, the first part of my answer is, I really want to be clear, I don't know. The second part of my answer is a guess. And that guess is that the Lord Jesus Christ can have special dispensations on those whom he will. And so the thief on the cross gets a special dispensation because of what it signifies to the outside world. And so the Lord being overly gracious to him does not mean that that's the way he works out his grace and everybody else. And that's not, it's not horribly different than the way that we sometimes view the grace of God because, you know, we, we have, there are some people who are um, the Lord converts in a moment and moves them away from sin in an instant, right? So there are sins that plague them, and the Lord just, they're gone. Like, they, they, whether it's drugs or pornography or whatever the case is, they, they just, they're like, oh, I'm, uh, I'm done with that. And then there are some people who the Lord graces with salvation, and for the next five decades of their life, they're still going to struggle with the same thing. So, my guess is that the Roman Catholics would say something like that, that there was a special work of the Lord. I, I don't think that they would view him as going to purgatory, though. I think that the, the word paradise there is really strongly linked to being with the presence of the Lord. So, um, yeah, that, that would be my, my guess. Uh, but but I, I do want to say, I, d I don't know how they, they handle that. It's a good question. Mark? Yeah, he did. He wrote a whole commentary on Romans. I don't know what he says in Romans 11. My guess is that he, he's perfectly happy. So the idea is, um, so long as the Jews remain Jews, at the end of his life, he, he said, we can give them no place in Germany. They are to be, you're, you're to, they're not to have schools anymore. They can't have their own special Jewish schools. Um, their businesses and their writings should be burned. We, we have no, no, part for them. Um, them becoming Christian and accepting Christ in Romans 11, I don't think he, he would say, amen, that's what we want. But them remaining as Jews and rejecting Christ, uh, they, they would then have no place in, in Germany. So as far as that goes, I, I don't think that he would see any, any issue with Romans 11. He, he, would treat it, he would treat Romans 11 quite, quite similarly to how you and I would think through Romans 11, would be my guess. Yes. Yeah. Who Luther? Yeah, you're you're a little you're you're a little cart ahead of the horse there. So. Uh, 
Calvin's a second generation reformer, Luther's a first. What he's doing is he's responding to Erasmus. So Erasmus writes this work um, that he, he hears of Luther. So Erasmus is this um, humanist scholar. He's um, Dutch, I want to believe. I don't know why I said it that way, but I think he's Dutch. Um, and he is an incredibly important scholar. And one of the Catholic theologies and part of the Catholic theology is, again, they have rejected this idea of predestination from Augustine, which Luther then digs back up. And the reason why he digs it back up is, again, the idea of everything being a gift means that even faith can't be a work. It's got to be a gift. Like, we're on, on par with that. And, and his, his writing in the bondage of the will is to point at the scriptures and say time and time again, sinners cannot do this outside of the grace of God. Like, there is no turning back to God. And so I, I wouldn't say that he's kind of like shrugging his shoulders. I think that he is firmly predestinarian in the Augustinian sense. So um, as far as Calvinism goes and where Calvin gets that from, um, that, is, that is a direct link back to Luther. He, he and Luther would see eye to eye on that. Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. That, by the way, is probably his most famous writing and probably the most important first-generation reformed writing is on the bondage of the will. So, okay. Anybody else? All right, we beat the kids. Amen. All right. Um, not, not physically, just time-wise. Sorry. This is being recorded. I need to clarify that. So, um, let's pray and, uh, and ask for God's blessings. Father God, we are thankful for Martin. Um, we're thankful that he was the way he was in a number of, of respects. Um, it, it would have taken quite a man to be able to stand up not only to the authority of the Pope, but the authority of the Emperor uh, to entrust himself to your, your provision. And, and because of a lot of that, um, we, we are what we are today. Um, Luther has had a profound effect on our lives. Um, we're also reminded that you save sinful people. Um, we can look at his life and we can not sugarcoat it. We can talk about his vile tendencies. We can talk about his um, attitudes toward Jews and the way he even writes about friends um, that, that is so harsh and demanding and remind ourselves that we believe in justification by faith. Um, we believe that he is justified by trusting himself to you, and, and so are we. Um, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has done great things for us in dying for our sins, uh, being buried, and being raised so that we might live with him. We are grateful, Father, for the work that, that we remember Martin best for. Um, we pray, Father, for his comfort in you, and we certainly ask for your blessings to be upon us as we live out the very things that he has spoken of well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.